Uh, in the year 2020, it's been quite a year, has it not? And uh, we picked a theme last fall with no knowledge. The leadership team got together, we had a retreat, we kind of um, prayed together, and we picked a theme for where we would focus in the year 2020. And we came upon an agreement that we would look at the life of Jesus. You think that was a good decision? Yeah, I do too, because we really need to bring Jesus into focus. We really need to uh, be challenged to be people who live by faith. Amen? Amen. So we're in the midst of our series. We're actually coming to the final weeks, the final chapters of the book of Luke, and things are really starting to hone in on this, this scene in Jerusalem and all that's taking place in the life of Jesus. And so I'm going to uh, start by reading a parallel passage, a, 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 another witness, the Gospel of Mark, who Peter worked with to write the Gospel, um, is giving us another perspective on what we're about to look at in the book of Luke this morning. So if you join me in Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 26, I want to read this so that we get some context for this morning's story. After singing psalms, you remember they're in the upper room, you remember that they had the Passover meal, and at the end of the Passover meal is lots of singing. Remember, they have all those cups of wine in them. They're very cheerful. They're excited. They've celebrated the freedom that God won them in the Exodus. Dale referred to that earlier. The Exodus out of Egypt, God through the Passover lamb, he rescued them from that slavery and he set them free. And so they, after singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, then Jesus said to them, all of you will run away. Because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from the Old Testament, Zechariah 13, verse 7. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone runs away, I will certainly not. I assure you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to the place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. Simon, are you sleeping? He asked Peter. Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. 
Let's pray this morning and ask God to open our hearts to his message and challenge from his word. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for sending your son Jesus into our world. God, we thank you for his willingness to come and to give his life a ransom for many. God, without Jesus, we would be hopeless. Without Christ, we would be in despair. God, we thank you. And as we examine the book of Luke, this moment in the garden, God, help us to understand your heart for us and help us to understand the priorities that you want us to live out. Father, we need you. Father, we ask you and invite you to come and to work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I, I love roller coasters. How many of you guys have ever been on a roller coaster? How many avoid roller coasters? Anybody? Yeah, there's a few, right? But I love roller coasters. I actually am pretty excited to get on a good roller coaster, but there's two roller coasters that really scare me. One, they call it a dark ride, right, where you're completely in the dark, and you have no idea what's going to happen next or where the ride's going. Because I kind of like to see what's coming. Anybody else? So that you can brace or, or adjust for what's going to happen. And yet you go to Disneyland, you go to that Space Mountain, and you can't see a thing. I mean, it's just these like little things and the, the, there's some sort of roller coaster doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and you get off that ride, and I literally have to take about an hour where I'm just closing my eyes and just trying to get my bearings again right? There's another type of coaster, and I rode this at Discovery Kingdom down in Vallejo, and it's called a boomerang. You guys ever ridden a boomerang roller coaster? It's the type that goes forward, and then it goes backwards, and that's just, that's brutal. That's, to me, it's worse than the dark one. For whatever reason, my, my body just can't handle going upside down backwards and through the loops and stuff like that. I literally got off that ride at Discovery Kingdom, and I just had to sit on a bench and hold my head in my hands. There's some things in life that are disorienting. There's some things in, in life that are very challenging, and that type of roller coaster for me, that's it. It just, it makes me just want to close my eyes. The disciples are in that moment. The disciples have been on a roller coaster with Jesus for three years. Imagine, they were just, many of them were fishermen. Many of them were just hanging out at their jobs. Life was boring. Life was dull. And then along came this man named Jesus. And he said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And Peter said, okay. And he left his net behind, and he left his boat behind. And the tax collector left his cheating behind Matthew, Levi, and he went and followed Jesus. And every one of these 12 disciples, their life changed the moment they got on that ride with Jesus. They were doing miracles with Jesus. They were casting out demons. They were just like moving from one location to another and, and confronting the powers that be both in Jerusalem and in Rome. There was all kinds of things happening in their life. And they think, wow, what a ride. This is an awesome ride. We're going we're gonna to rule with Jesus. He's the Messiah. And they're excited to be with him. And then they come to this final evening. And Jesus starts ramping up the idea that things aren't going to be as rosy as you guys all thought. Because I didn't come to overthrow Rome. I didn't come to, to ease all of your problems in this world. No, I came for a specific reason. That was to give my life. 
I've come to lay down my life to atone for the sins of the world. And you guys are going to be right there when all of this goes down. And in their minds, they can't process. It's like now they're going backwards through the roller coaster. They can't fathom what's happening. And he's talking about that one of them is going to betray him. One of them, uh, one of the 12, they can't process. Peter says, I will never abandon you. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, Peter. You're going to disown me. You're going to say that you didn't even know who I was three times before the rooster crows tonight. Peter can't fathom that. Peter is insistent, that can't be me. And yet Jesus tells him that it is. Join me in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. We only have like seven verses today. This is beautiful. This is like what I want every sermon. I'm just trying to plant the seed in Kurt's mind. I love seven verses. Thank you. Thank you for that. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Luke chapter 21, verse 37 tells us this, that every day Jesus would go and teach in the temple, and then he would retreat at night to the Mount of Olives to be with his disciples, to pray, to seek God, to re-energize, because his life in Jerusalem was difficult. It was challenging. Every moment, was difficult, and so he needed that recharge. He needed that opportunity to, to be in solitude and amongst those who were friends. And so he had this habit, this pattern, and he didn't depart from it, even though Judas, one of the, one of the 12, had left the upper room. You remember? Judas, Satan entered him. Judas had sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And now he had gone, and he said, hey, I know where Jesus is. I know where he's going to be. And guess what? The leaders in Jerusalem, they love the idea of arresting Jesus without a crowd. Why? Because the crowds up until that point loved him. They would have rioted. They would have gone after the authorities. And so they were looking for an opportunity to find this man in his secret hideout. Jesus went to his hideout, the Mount of Olives. Judas knew where that hideout was because he had been with him many times. Why didn't Jesus depart from his habit? Why didn't he say, whoa, somebody's after me. Let's not go to the secret hideout, the bat cave. Let's not go there because my betrayer knows where that is. Let's go somewhere else. No, Jesus didn't run away from his call. Jesus didn't divert even in the face of danger. Jesus continued his habits. He didn't run away despite the persecution that he was about to face. Verse 40, when he reached the place, oh, the place, what is this place? The place is called from the, from the gospel of Mark, Gethsemane. It was east of Jerusalem. You had to cross over. You had to go down a little bit and then back up. East of Jerusalem, there's a mountain, the Mount of Olives, and you had to cross over a little brook, a little stream, and that stream was known as the stream Kidron from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 1. You know, I, I, thought, I looked up the meanings of these words this week, and I thought, wow, this is really symbolic. This is, this is trying to alert the reader of what's about to take place. Why? Well, let me give you some analogies here, some of the things the, the Bible talks about. 
It calls Israel an olive tree. Israel is referred to many places in the Bible as an olive tree. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16. Romans chapter 11, verse 24. The olive tree was symbolic for the nation of Israel. Jesus was the fruit of that olive tree. He was the Messiah. He was the one to come. In essence, he was the olive. And Gethsemane means olive press. The olive is about to be pressed. The oil is going to come out. That oil is going to benefit all of mankind. Jesus was willing to go through the press for us. And here he is in the garden that is known as the olive press. It's probably amongst an olive grove. That's a place that he would go and retreat with his disciples each and every day while he was in Jerusalem. The name Kidron, the creek, the brook that he had to cross over, is, is the name of it means murky or dark. And there's some real dark things about to take place. Judas is about to show up, leading a contingent of soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. There's darkness. Satan is behind it. He is the prince of darkness. The imagery is real. The symbolism is happening and the gospel writer is trying to get the reader to understand that there's something dark and murky about to take place. Jesus is about to be pressed. When he reached that place, that place was also a place where David had run. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 15, his son Absalom had chased him from the throne. Absalom had betrayed his own father the one closest to him. And now David had left with the rest of his men that were loyal to him. They had crossed over the Kidron book and they ended up in this very same location. You can read it in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 15. A rightful king had been chased from his throne, had been betrayed by someone close to him, and was now being hunted down. There's typology throughout the Bible. When you read the Old Testament, understand that the Old Testament paints the picture of a New Testament reality. Many times, there are stories that you're like, why in the world is that story there? Anybody ever read the Old Testament? And you're like, why did the prophet send a bear and devour like all the little youth, right? And you read some of these crazy stories and you're like, why is it there? But you need to understand that God is painting a picture of his son, Jesus, and realities that refer to him. And so what a beautiful picture of David on the run and ends up in the same location that Jesus, years later, would find himself betrayed by someone close to him, surrounded by those who were still faithful, and yet about to face persecution When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Mark chapter 14, verse 33, we just read it. It says, who he took with him. He had left the other disciples. Remember, there were 11, at least 11 of them, right? Judas was gone. He, left the, he leaves the other eight, and he says, sit here. And he takes three of his disciples a little further. It tells us in Mark 14, 33, he took Peter, James, and John with him a little bit further into the garden. 
You know, this is the third time. This is the company that Jesus chose to keep. These three men out of the 12, they were the ones that he seemed to invest a little extra time with, knowing what lied ahead for each of them. It's the third time in the, in the Gospels that these three are isolated with Jesus. The first was with Jairus' daughter when he rose the daughter from the dead. That's in Luke chapter 8, verse 41 through 56. The second time was just a little while later when he transfigured before them on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that moment? Jesus reveals his glory, peels off his humanity, and it's almost like Superman coming through the cape. And there's this realization of like who Jesus really is. And Peter gets really excited. You remember that? He said, this is good. Let's stay here. Let's stay in this moment. And now he finds himself with these same three disciples in this place of torment and agony of his soul. And he's invited them into this moment. Why? Because Jesus is always getting us ready for what lies ahead. Do you realize that? Jesus is always preparing us for what he knows we're about to face. And these three men, James would be the first one to face death of all the disciples. He was the first one. You can read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 12. He was put to the sword. The first of the 12 that was, that was martyred. You remember John, he was the last of the disciples to die. He ended up exiled on an, on an island of Patmos, writing the book of Revelation that we have today. And he died from all sources of natural causes as a very old man. He had to live his entire life out. And Jesus knew that he had a long time ahead of him before he was to face death. And Peter, Peter faced tons of persecution in Jerusalem leading the church. He eventually was ordered to be crucified. And, and, and the tradition says that he was said, I am unworthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. And so they turned his cross upside down and crucified him upside down. You know, Jesus knew what lied ahead for each of these men, and he was getting them ready. In that moment where he pulled them aside and Jairus' daughter, he is revealing that he has the power over death. Death is not the end. He raised the little girl from the dead, and they had a special up-close and personal front-row seat to that moment. Jesus is trying to say, guys, don't worry about death. Death is not the end. I am greater than death. In that moment where he takes him up on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, he's revealing that he can transcend death. This is the glory that lies ahead. You can experience the glory with me. You are going to have a resurrected body just like Christ. Think about that. That moment where Jesus transcended this earthly life. In this earthly mortal shell, we get so wrapped up in our bodies, do we not? I mean, billions of dollars are spent by women trying to look good, by men at the gym trying to pump iron. We spend a lot of time, and there's good things that come from that, right? We don't have to look at each other and be horrified. <laughs> but there's a sense that we should be spending and investing much more time on the eternal reality investing ourselves into that reality. 
because that's what is, lies ahead. And Jesus wanted them to know that. He wanted them to lift their eyes above the temporal and into the eternal. And finally, in this moment, he invites them up close and personal into this moment because he wants them to understand that when there's going to be trials and testings, that the answer to getting through it is prayer. The, the thing, the, the weapon that God has given us, the tool, if you want to use that word, that God has given us, the gift that he's given us to make it through the tough times, the times where we're going to face testing and trials, is this gift of prayer approaching the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that our God hears us and that our God cares. That's what Jesus is modeling for these three men. Verse 41, then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and began to pray. He goes a little further away and he goes into solitude, about a stone's throw. Well, it depends on if Dr. Fauci's throwing, it wasn't far away. All right, but some of us can throw, uh, Stephen Upton, one of our lead singers, that guy can throw from like the outfield fence and probably over the home plate. I've seen it. That guy's got a cannon, right? But it depends on who's throwing the stone. It's an interesting phrase. I don't know how far away he was, but he was far enough away where the disciples felt like they were left alone, and Jesus is over there somewhere praying. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is this cup? This cup refers to suffering. This cup is the third cup. Do you remember at the Passover meal? It's the cup of redemption. It's the cup of atonement. This cup is what Jesus had to bear. You remember in that upper room when he took that third cup, he said this cup is the new covenant, the new contract that is written in my blood. He knew what was to come. He knew the agony that he was to face. And in this moment, being fully man, being fully human, Yes, he was fully God too, but his humanity is seeing the agony that's on the horizon, and he is in despair. Any of you guys want to face torture? No. None of us as humans want to face that. You know, I'm not as afraid of death as much as I'm afraid of the process leading up to death. The pain. None of us as humans like pain. We try everything we can to get rid of pain. We have a billion-dollar pharmaceutical industry that tries to leave you of pain will do anything. Here was Jesus looking straight at the most painful moment. And it wasn't just painful because of the physical torment. There was a spiritual component that none of us can fathom. Could you imagine taking on the sins of the world onto yourself, bearing them in your own body, carrying the load of the weight of sin, I can't even fathom it. I know I'm a sinner, and I've done some pretty bad and horrible, horrible things, and I'm thinking multiply that by billions upon billions upon billions. How did Jesus do it? No wonder he was in this moment of agony. What is this cup? First of all, it's a solitary suffering. It's a cup of solitary suffering. He was removed from them. He was alone, the Bible tells us. John chapter 16, verse 32, he's in the upper room. 
and he tells them that they will all leave him. They'll all be scattered. He'll be all alone. He knew it was coming, this moment where no one else was there to help him. Sometimes it's encouraging. You know, Job had these friends. I don't know how encouraged he was by them. But he had these friends who came to his side when he was what? When he was suffering. And at least he had that companionship. He was arguing with them. He hated them many of the times as you read through the book of Job. He wasn't that comforted by these guys, right? But at least he had them. Jesus knew he was going to have no one. All his disciples would be scattered. John stayed but at a distance. Peter tried to follow, but as we'll find out, he didn't really make it. And Jesus knew that was coming. Secondly, in Matthew 27, verse 46, it says that when Jesus was on the cross bearing the the load of sin, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a moment where the father turned his back on the son. Talk about isolation. I can't even fathom how the Godhead, the Trinity, can somehow be torn apart in that moment. But the Bible tells us that it was. The Bible tells us that there was a moment where Jesus took on and became sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, He, speaking of God the Father, made the one, speaking of Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, it's interesting because in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it says that the high priest once a year would go into the holy of holy places inside the, the temple. And he would go alone. And he would never go without blood. And his job was to sprinkle the blood of the atonement over the mercy seat. And that God would look at that blood and look at that sacrifice and say, the sins are covered for one more year. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it says that Jesus became our high priest when he died on the cross for our sins. And his blood was carried into heaven, into the place where that symbolic mercy seat on earth in the temple, there is a real mercy seat in heaven. And he delivered his blood once for all onto that mercy seat. And God the Father said, it is finished, it is covered forever. Amen? but he did it alone. It was a solitary suffering. Secondly, it was an intense suffering. This is a moment of supreme agony. I can't imagine. Can you? The judgment, the mockery, the jeers, the false charges, the beatings, the cross. All of this laid ahead of him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus, the high priest, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear 
of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted or tested. He is able to help those who are being tempted or tested. Number three, it was a perfect suffering. This word perfect is really the word complete. That means that he did it all. It was, it was only needed once, and he did it all. He completed it all. Everything the Father had sent him to do, he had finished. This is why he is saying, nevertheless, thy will be done. Not mine, but thy will be done. And heaven was silent in that moment in that prayer. Isn't that frustrating? Have you ever prayed a prayer where heaven is silent? Because there is no other way. This was the way. Jesus was to go through it. It's a challenging moment. But being totally surrendered to the will of God is really the example that Jesus sets for all of us. No matter what we face, are you surrendered to the will of God? Are you willing to adhere to what God has to say in any given moment, or do you give in to the temptations of the flesh, the temptations of the easy road, the temptations of what the devil is trying to work in your life? John chapter 19 verse 30 tells us that when Jesus was on the cross and he had received the sour wine that was being offered to him because he had cried out, I thirst. He then cried out, it is finished. In that moment, he breathed his last. He had come to complete the work that the Father had given to him and he did complete it through a perfect suffering. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. You can say thank you in that moment so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Do you realize that God the Father's will was for the, for the, for the redemption of all mankind to be achieved, and that could only come through Christ? It was a perfect suffering, suffering. And finally, it was a necessary suffering. It was necessary. It was the only way. There was no other way. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit this cup are you thankful 
that Jesus was willing to bear it, that Jesus is willing to drink from it. I know that I am, because without Jesus' sacrifice, there could be no forgiveness of our sins. Verse 43, as we wrap up this morning, then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke's the only one who mentions these two things. First of all, that an angel came and ministered to him. You know, we all have our Gethsemane. We all have our moments of being pressed. But every Gethsemane has an angel that comes to our aid, that comes to our side. But how does it come to us? It comes to us through prayer, through asking. The Bible says you, you do not have because you do not ask. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may, may be made complete, the Bible tells us. Why don't we ask? Why don't we turn to the Father when we're in need? Is it our pride? Is it our doubt that he can help us? Jesus had no doubt. Jesus was in agony. He was struggling. And he said, Father, I need you. And the Father dispatched an angel to his side to minister to him. It says that he was in anguish. There's a medical condition. I don't have a lot of time. I researched this this week. It's called hematidrosis. It really, it describes this, this moment where people have been in intense agony and stressful situations. It's been witnessed and documented throughout history. Other times than this, when Jesus endured it. Can you imagine the agony that Jesus was in knowing what was ahead? It said that he'd sweat. It, it, this condition talks about you're in such agony and such stress that it starts to break your vessels between your sweat glands and your blood vessels. And then your blood starts pouring out of your sweat glands. That's stress. Can you imagine? This is the condition that Jesus is in in the garden. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says this, During his earthly life, he, speaking of Jesus, our high priest, offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 45 of Luke 22. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. These guys couldn't stay awake. You remember the gospel of Mark said it, it happened three times. He came back and they were just still, they were asleep. They couldn't keep their eyes open. Luke points out that it was the source. It was from their grief. They were in despair. They were on the roller coaster. And they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They were just confused. They were disoriented. They were just sad. And they couldn't focus on prayer in that moment. They just wanted to close their eyes, try and reorient, hope the next day would come and they wouldn't have to think about what Jesus had just told them in the upper room. And yet this was all real. John chapter 16, verse 20, looking back at that moment in the upper room, Jesus said this to his disciples, I assure you, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is in labor, she, is, she has pain because her time has come. 
But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will rob you of your joy. Is that a promise from our precious Savior that we can have joy because no one can take that away? Verse 26, why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. We have some closing, concluding principles that I just want to point out quickly. Number one, Jesus exemplified a life of prayer. You remember he had a habit of going to this mountain. He had a habit, the Bible tells us, of retreating, spending moments with the Father in prayer. He was modeling that for his disciples, and he was trying to get them to understand this gift of prayer, how powerful it is that we have access through Christ to the Father, the creator of the heavens and earth. He lacks nothing in terms of power, knowledge, ability to to touch your life and make a difference for you but he's waiting patiently for you to come to him and ask. Just like a child doesn't hesitate when they're in need to run to their parents. Say, Daddy, Mommy, I need, I need, right? There's no hesitation. Why do we hesitate? Why don't we spend the time to go to the Father in prayer? He exemplified. He made a habit. He depended on it. Number two, Jesus explains the benefits of prayer. What are the benefits? Pray that you would not enter into temptation. He knew that prayer is the gateway to keep us from going off the rails. Jesus, in a moment of great agony, knowing what's to come, he knows I need to pray to stay on path, to stay on course. If Jesus needs to pray, being fully God and fully man, we don't have the God part. So we need to pray, do we not? To stay on the rails so the roller coaster doesn't leave the rails and, 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 and cause a big disaster. The benefits of prayer is it sustains, it strengthens, it draws us closer to God. It, it brings us into a complete dependence on him to carry us through the trials, the testings, and the temptations of life. You know, in my moments of life, the times where I've gotten furthest off the rails is when my prayer life was non-existent. And prayer doesn't have to be this formal thing where we get down on our knees and we, we close our eyes. No, prayer is when you're driving your car. Please don't close your eyes in that moment. And you just cry out to God, God, I'm really angry right now because that guy just cut me off and I really want to do something stupid. That's a prayer. That's a moment where you're drawing your attention back to what God wants you to do, how he wants you to respond. See, prayer needs to be an every moment thing. That's why the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Because we should be in constant communication with the Father. But there's moments of solitude as well, where we need to get away from all the distractions and just seek the heart of God. Finally, Jesus exhorts his disciples to pray. And that's what we're going to do in these final moments of our service together. We're going to pray as a church, because there's no greater application I can give you this morning than to say, let's pray. So we're going to do that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite Jan to come up. Jan Gutierrez is a, a member of our prayer team. Where is Jan? There she is. She's coming. And we're going to do something that may not feel totally familiar to us 
as a church or if you're maybe a guest here this morning. But I want to give you some peace in your heart. All we're going to do is we're going to pray. All right, we're going to pray together over a few topics this morning. And this is how it's going to work. You know, the disciples were in a group of three. You know, they were left as a group of three. They fell asleep, but they were supposed to, they were called by Jesus to pray. So let's get together in groups of two or three or so. And let's just pray over these, over these topics we're going to inter, or Jan's going to introduce. Maybe you're here, you're like, I'm not comfortable being in a group. Um, that's okay. You can pray in solitude. Did Jesus not remove himself and pray in solitude? You can do that. If you're not comfortable praying, no one's forcing you to pray today. Maybe you want to be prayed over. You can slip up your hand. We have a whole group of prayer team warriors in the church that will see that hand and come next to you and just pray over you in these moments. Josh is going to be on the piano. I guess Nate's going to be on the keyboard. And they're going to provide a little bit of background music as we pray over these topics. So I'm going to turn it over to Jan. She's going to introduce our first topic. Jan? Jan? 